You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Today on Line Noise, we welcome Grammy Award-winning producer, Killing Joke bass player, Paul McCartney collaborator, psychedelic trance innovator, and so much more. Youth, uh, I think he's an absolutely fascinating figure, as I said, started off uh, in Killing Joke, uh, a legendary punk band, and has just gone on to do absolutely everything, uh, including working with The Orb. Uh, he was half of Blue Pearl, who had massive chant hit with Naked in the Rain. Um, and the occasion we're talking to him now is there's a new album out uh, with Gaudi, uh, which is uh, a sort of trance duo he, uh, he has. And the new album is called Stratosphere. And so we decided to take the opportunity to talk with him about electronic music. We ended up talking about little fluffy clouds, Dragonfly Records, Goa Trance, and what on earth it's like to work with Paul McCartney. Hi. Hi, how are you? Yeah, good. Sounds a lot of fun where you are. Hi, it's a weird thing I'm doing today. It's like a publisher's sync camp. So um, they get all, all these publishers of theirs from Nashville around the world and they're some of their top writers and they give them a long brief and then get them to write some song. Is it so fun? It's pretty soporific, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's like every song brief they've, they've played is like nothing I would ever listen to. <laughs> so... Well, it's, yeah. nice, it's nice to speak to you. I don't know if you remember the last time we, we spoke, it was under the Barcelona sun and we were uh, drinking beer, which was which was pleasant. Oh, what, at Primavera Festival? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, that was good. Um, but yeah, I thought, I thought it'd be really nice to speak to you because um, uh, well, obviously you've done so many different things. Um, but I kind of wanted to talk to you uh, about your history with electronic music, um, kind of because the new album with Gaudi uh, is just out. And I thought it'd be interesting, yeah. you know, to talk to talk about that, basically. Okay, yeah, sure. So, I mean, your background was obviously in, in punk and, and reggae, but when did electronic music first come into your life? I suppose... Um... I suppose it was Kraftwerk and then I Feel Love, Maroda, the Germans, um, both of which were groundbreakingly seismic for me. And, um, and were you listening to that at, at, the, at the time, the same time you were listening to punk? It's just before punk, Kraftwerk. I, I think I Feel Love was the same year as... Uh, this pistols launch, so it kind of went hand in hand, and I was into sort of soul and disco before punk. So uh, a lot of the punk scene came out of that soul boy scene in the late seventies, mid seventies. So um, yeah, that was interesting, and uh, but I suppose you know MIDI didn't actually come into like nineteen eighty. My first records were like 1977, 78. If we wanted to try and get a Marauder-like sequencer, we would have to uh, do it with a delay, you know. And we did that on our first early Killing Joke singles. And then suddenly MIDI came in, and then it was, it's a much, it was much easier to sync up electronics to clicks. 
and that became, I suppose, post-hype of the 80s, and that whole new romantic electronic thing really kicked in because of that then. I was going to ask, so when did you, obviously, you, you made lots of records with, with Killing Joke, but when was that your first sort of experience in making electronic music? Well, we were trying to do that with Killing Joke early on, mashing it up with disco and dub and punk in a way. But I think the first electronic band I produced was a band called Portion Control, who were on mute. And they, that was probably 81, 82, and that was, they were all electronics, and uh, and that was really great. Um, and then I started, uh, you know, and then I started getting into hip-hop and electro, and all of that was electronic, working with Rusty Egan, um, and my band Brilliant, we were playing with electronics a lot. And I was also working with producers who could do that, like Zoe Speed Held, who was the kind of nearest I could get to a German marauder, 1982-83. And also producing bands like Alien Sex Fiend, which you wouldn't normally think as being electronic, but it was all drum machines and sequences and pulses with punk guitar. So there was quite a lot, actually. I find it's interesting, someone like Alien Sex Fiend, because... Um, a lot of sort of goth bands, for want of a better word, I found had like, you know, you had drum machines, you had things like Sisters of Mercy. And, yeah, yeah. You know, they're a lot more open minded musically than I think popular belief would have you believe. Yeah. Well, if you listen to Ignore the Machine, that was like number one on the indie chart for months. And it was just, it, it was like a club record. There was a DJ at the back cave, Hamish. And he was the first guy, along with Rusty Egan, to create a, a DJ set that was rock but worked on a dance floor. So it had a lot of records that had drum machines and stuff. And that really informed what I was going to do with that Alien Sex Fiend record because I was going to that club. And, uh, you know, it, it just made a lot of sense. One thing I was And then suddenly, you know... Over the next 20 years, dance and punk and rock all blended into what we call indie dance now, you know. Um, um, and were you, one thing I've wondered about you is sort of, obviously you worked with the Orb. Were you ever actually officially in them? Kind of. I've always, enc I always encouraged Alex to have his own band and that was always going to be the Orb and that was always going to be Alex, but I... I, I kind of wrote and produced Little Fluffy Clouds and a number of other things. But I've always seen it as his project. So I kind of in and out. And Little Fluffy Clouds is an amazing record. How did that come about? came about because Alex had done his first record with Jimmy from the KLF and uh, Loving You. And then they fell out. And then you know, Alex not a musician or a producer or programmer. So... He was stuck. I said, don't worry, I'll do the next one. And that, that was Fluffy Clouds. And then how did Blue Pearl come about? I was just after that, and I'd gone to see Pink Floyd play in Venice, and I'd met Durga backstage. She was doing backing vocals for them. I was a bit drunk, and I said, I'll come to London and we'll make a hit record, and you'll be a star. And two weeks later, she turned up, and then, I think we wrote that in 20 minutes in my bedroom. I had a sequence, just put a vocal over it. 
and that was it, you know. How did you feel about having sort of big chart hits? I mean, obviously, like, Killing Joke were a big band, but, um, I mean, Naked in the Rain was, was it number one in the UK? I was amazed. I, 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 you know, I was surprised they became hits, a lot of those hits, um, because maybe I was so close to them, I was writing them and producing them. But uh, yeah, I was uh, I was delighted. <laughs> I wish we'd had a few more. <laughs> it's one of those things. If you try and write a hit, you rarely do. If you just do something because you're there and you want to do that, and that's what you want to hear, that can often be a hit. <laughs> I think that's really interesting because how you you know that, um, but sometimes you know you have to go and write on cue. I imagine. <sighs> So is there, like, do you have any sort of ways in which you can get yourself into that, into that frame of mind where, you, where it's like you're not writing because you have to, if you see what I mean? Well, it's one of the immutable seven rules of uh, sinking I've just discovered is don't try and write a sink here, you know, to write a good song. <laughs> um, you know, it's like there's all rules are made to be broken so they can all equally apply both ways, you know, but essentially there are boundaries and guidelines, but you can break those as well. Um, it's really an emotional connection, and you and then songs are really little stories, you know. Um, it's weird, isn't it? Twice I've heard this phrase of talking about music is like dancing about architecture, which is apparently an old phrase. I've never heard it before. But I disagree because I produce and write. I have to describe in words what it is I'm doing to my collaborators and artists. And, and I've worked out there is a vocabulary you can use. There is a way you can talk about music. The thing is, if you don't talk about music, no one's, if, you can't, if you're not able to describe what you're thinking, no one's going to understand you. So you've got to learn how to do that. But it's weird because... It's two different mediums, the words and sound and music and song. You know, they're, 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 they're all very different. So, Well, one of the um, things... You have to embrace that paradox, I think. One of the things I've heard about what makes a good producer is someone who is able to do that, who's able to understand what the artist means when they say, you know, they want the hi-hats to sound, you know, more more summery or something like that and actually and actually do it, you know, translate that. Sort of verbal well, request. You've got to learn to do that with artists anyway. Artists say, you might say to an artist, what do you want this record to be like? And they'll go, oh, I don't want any hit singles. And what they actually mean is, I've got to have a hit single. <laughs> You're dealing with doublespeak all the time with artists and, and the industry managers, you know, publishers, um, the record company people, every, everyone has their way of trying to describe what it is they want. Um, and most of the time they fail dismally, you know. But you, or, they're, or they're saying it in such a crazy way that what they're saying they don't want is actually what they do want. And you know, I have to learn through experience how to discern and read between those lines what that really is. I always think that must be one of the most interesting things about being a producer, that psychological side, you know, sort of teasing. Absolutely. It's the thing that keeps bringing me back is it's fascinating and people are fascinating. But, and I love working with people and all their complex diamond dynamics is endlessly fascinating. Um, it can be endlessly frustrating as well. <laughs> 
How did you get into psychedelic trance? It's um, it seems a long way from punk and from reggae. Not at all. It's the same stream of underground current, you know, particularly the psychedelic underground current that's gone on from 20s left bank Paris through the beats to the hippies to rave, acid house, <laughs> punk. <clears throat> acid house quickly burned out within two years. Big gangsters and drug dealers have taken over the scene. A lot of those hippies, especially the Ibiza ones, were already going to Goa. In Goa, it was a more autonomous zone, freedom, lawless place. People living, taking acid all the time. Oh, I thought you were talking to yourself then. No, I'm doing an interview. <laughs> um, and so it seemed like a logical place to go after Ibiza, especially for those who were the spiritually motivated ones. Um, so a lot of the people who were very prominent on that early acid scene ended up in Goa by 89, 90, when I first went. And, uh, yeah, it was fascinating. Really fascinating place to be. What is it about the music you like so much? I have a friend who's really into psychedelic trance, Goa trance. He always talks about it taking you on a journey. It does. It facilitate. I mean, all those musics essentially facilitate a community and a feeling. And that really did facilitate this expansionist uh, kind of punk hippie thing. You know, it was very killing joke in a weird way. Very tribal and very anarchist and very utopian. And that's the crossover with killing joke, the kind of tribal utopian idea. I think so, yeah. There were a lot of uh, old Killing Joke fans there, so there were a lot of American Deadhead fans. It was a real mashup, and then people coming down from the ashrams who didn't take acid, they were just meditating, but they would dance for eight hours nonstop. And that whole dancing is such an important uh, community, communal thing to do. Um, so people bonded and communities created very quickly. And you founded Dragonfly Records, which is absolutely iconic um, in, in trance. Um, what was your experience like there? Why did you decide to, to form it? Well, I was out there and people um, there were playing a lot of my early records that I'd made on Wow Modo, actually. And, um, and I was introduced to all the main DJs and music makers. I realised there was no actual sort of outlet for, for it. It was coming out on these weird independent German labels and none of it was coming out actually. So I said, well, I'll set up an imprint that can facilitate it. And that was Dragonfly. And were you ever surprised by just how big Dragonfly became? Yeah, it's paradoxical because at the time, everyone in Goa was like, don't tell anyone about Goa. Don't promote <laughs> And I was like, it's too late. <laughs> and I, my whole agenda was to promote it and, and push it. And I'm glad I did because, I mean, it's still going strong. It's developed and it's still a very strong underground current. Yeah. I mean, presumably that they didn't want you to tell people about Goa because they thought it might ruin it. Too many people might come in. Um, I, yeah, I heard people say that in Ibiza a few years before. Don't tell anyone about this. And I'm like, why? Yeah, I've never been into that exclusivity. I've really been into you know turning people on to stuff and getting friends involved. 
as soon as it's on. Yeah. I mean, is it still going strong in, in Goa? Massive. You look at Azor or Bum, they attract like hundreds of thousands of people now. And uh, it's Brazil, South America, all around the world is huge. Paradoxically, you never read about it in the media or very rarely see it anywhere. Um, documented or discussed. Um, which is possibly why it's remained such a strong underground force because it's never really been overexploited. And it's impossible to kind of cross it over because it's so uncommercial in many ways. Nevertheless, some of those big DJs now have millions of followers and they're making a lot of money playing live and DJing. Uh, it's a big industry. But it still remains very underground to, you know, the established media and uh, culture. I remember, like one thing I remember very much is um, there were some like basically Goa trance like trance remixes uh, of Killing Joke. I'm just looking at the the album that was out on Dragonfly in 1998. Um, yeah. Like, how did the rest of the that was band... a bit later? Okay. Uh, yeah. How did the rest you, of the band? What you're going to think is like there were, if there were hadn't been Goa trance, there would have been no Burning Man. The first music at Goa trance, uh, at Burning Man was Goa trance. A whole look of that, everything of that was birthed out of Goa. Yeah. How do the rest of the band feel about that? I mean, about the... Oh, Jazz actually loves it. And, yeah, Geordie's more into Detroit techno. Paul's, you know, got his own thing. But, yeah, they love it. And so your, your new album with Gaudi, um, you call it Psychedelic Future Dub. I would, I, it's got a kind of trance feel to it. Would you Would you agree? Something like Azora 3 Yeah, there's trance elements in, yeah, definitely. How how do you see the new album? Like what what how, what space does it represent for you in your in your kind of career? Well, it combines elements of dub, trance, electronica, EDM, techno. All those things get mashed up into that sound. Um, but there's no one else that sounds quite like us. I think so. It's quite unique, but it kind of fits into a lot of different things, especially on a dance floor. And how did you hook up with Gaudi? Oh, just from DJing around London and getting to know him. He's actually big. His biggest scene is the trance scene, even though he plays dub. Um, he generally gets booked at trance festivals. So I've seen him along my travels. There's been a bit of a, um, a mainstream revival and interest in, in trance, or as I see it. Um, you know, people talking about it a bit more in mainstream media. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, culture now contains everything, doesn't it? You have trance tracks, we trap hi-hats and grime, raps, all sorts. I mean, look at, if you look at hip-hop now, they're really going to that sort of early 90s trance sound and it bleeds into psychedelic trance, but it's, that's bizarre. But it's cool. I love it. Are you surprised that it was that it's been revived? I'm surprised it's taken so long to get filter through into the modern vernacular, but it's but it's good to see it. Yeah. I want to ask as well um, about the firemen, if I may. Uh, obviously, a uh, musical duo with Paul McCartney. How how yeah. how on earth did that come about? 
well, that first Fine album was a trance album, essentially, um, before even trance was coming out. Um, I, it, uh, it started off with him asking me to do a remix, and that morphed into one of the original projects. And then he wanted to put it out as a band, and I was like, cool, let's do it. I mean, there must have been quite a moment where Paul McCartney says you, he wants to be in a band with you. <laughs> Especially doing sort of instrumental trance. <laughs> but it was great fun. And it was great fun, him being in the room while I was mixing and doing it. You know, he really got it. He loved it. And if you look at the Beatles and go back to the Beatles, it's a lot of trance. And all that psychedelic stuff, all the all cut-up stuff, sampling, tape looping... Uh, you can trace that directly back to the Beatles in the mid-60s. They were always the first off the block with it all, but everyone else had just been catching up. So it wasn't surprising that he got it, because he pioneered it in a way. And is he a fan of kind of trance music? Did you put on some some Goa trance? Oh, yeah, I've done... Yeah, I've played in lots of stuff. Yeah, he liked it. He, you know, it's great driving music, isn't it? You know? Yeah. Um, um, anyway, listen, I've got to get back to this uh, sync thing. Any, any, uh, any last questions? Uh, just one final thing. Um, can you recommend me one song from your catalogue that people might not know? Anything you kind of produced or you want to recommend? In what context? In any, in any con- well, in electronic context. Maybe uh, electronic. Some- yeah. Oh, okay. Check out my man. Uh, um, guy called Gerald remix. Uh, um, uh, pink, I think it's pink lemonade or something, acid lemonade or something. That's a really good one. Or ignore the machine. <laughs> cool. Hot lemonade transcendental fizz remix by Youth. I got. Yeah. Cool. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thanks so much for taking the time, and I hope uh, the rest of the. Um, of the sync thing is is fun or <laughs> borderline fun. Okay, well, pleasure talking to you. And send us a link when it when it's going to go up. I certainly will do. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Sam. Right, Bye. Sure,